EMS1.com is the number one online resource for the EMS community and authoritative voice in pre-hospital care. Our members enjoy access to exclusive content from top EMS educators and physicians, award-winning e-newsletters, original video series, member-only product discounts, access to free continuing education courses, and much more. If you're an EMS and not a member of EMS1, join the community for free today. Just go to ems1.com backslash registration. That's ems1.com backslash registration to become a member. Well, it's time once again to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Sabalero, and coming to us from the from the road, actually, on the EMS World Tour, is our co-host and good friend, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, what's going on? Oh, not much, man. I'm just getting back from Des Moines, Iowa, uh, from there, from the Iowa's Department of Health's uh, trauma conference. Uh, had a good time there, and and headed home now. Awesome. And so you are uh, traveling. You're in Houston, Texas. So how are things down mm-hmm. there? Uh, it's it's Houston, which means there's a lot of traffic. It's insanely hot and humid. And uh, I'm stewing in my own juices right now. But got the air conditioner on in the truck. and Things are cooling off. So, but everybody does want to know, we are at the uh, week four of the Kelly is not getting a dog uh, watch. <laughs> and if we could just take a brief... <laughs> uh update on how that's going for uh nancy out there in world famous Pitkin, louisiana at casa del grayson yeah grayson acres uh pet compound i am not getting another dog i i am not keeping this dog he's folks he's a lovely little puppy he's cute he's playful he he's more or less house trained i mean he's a puppy but he he does his business outdoors and he needs a forever home. Forever. I love dogs, but I, my, our little charming cottage in the woods is too small for the amount of pets we have. We we need someone to take this dog, please. What kind of what kind of dog is it? Have you have you determined what that is? I think I, he he's probably going to weigh no more than twenty pounds or so. I, he's probably gonna so be a little a guy. Terrier. He's a little guy. Yeah, yeah, a little rat terrier or something. He's black and white spotted and and. Uh, I call him the I call him BFD the bouncy flouncy dog because he likes to prance and and bounce around and, and tussle with the other dogs. He is he has doubled in size since we picked his forlorn little self up off the side of the road, uh, and now he is bigger than the than the kitten that he likes to wrestle with. And the kitten ain't having none of that. So they used they used to be well matched little playmates, and now the puppy just mauls the kitten, and the cat's like, "Oh, come on, man, not again!" Give me a break. That's right. So maybe we should on the next show we could have Nancy join us, so she could really put this to bed if Kelly's getting a dog. But for any of the <laughs> listeners out there, I mean, we could ship this dog, right? Put it in a box or something, or how does that work? Yeah, we'll poke some holes in the lid or something. All right, I'll good. Do something. We'll get it. I'll I'll deliver him within two hundred miles. Oh. How about that? So not yeah. only not only do you get a free dog, but Kelly Grayson will actually bring that dog to you within 200 miles of world famous Pitkin, Louisiana. 
with a certificate suitable for framing or something this <laughs> week we right. bought. <laughs> he may even do your lawn too while we're at it. So let's right. throw some yard work in there, Kelly. <laughs> so, you know, uh, we always get the comments from listeners saying we don't do the news anymore. And one of the mm-hmm. things that we've tried to do is we've tried to make the show a little bit more evergreen. This way, when you kind of pop into, you know, to listen to a show, there's not really a date or time stamp uh, because of the stories that we're doing. But people like when we dished about the news and we kind of talked about what was going on in our career field, really what was happening inside EMS. So we thought today we'll kind of go back to a little bit of uh, discussion and news and we'll kind of bring up some news stories and kind of mm-hmm. share our, uh, you know, kind of share our thoughts on them. What do you think? I, I, uh, all for it. And when I when we do the news, one of the things I love to do is is highlight the attaboys and the, the paramedics and, and EMTs that done well. Um, and we've got a great story out of Windsor Locks, Connecticut, um, that a Bradley International Airport firefighter paramedic, uh, Miss Christina Palumbo, has coded three people in recent uh, times and and got them all back. So she's had three saves in recent memory and. You know, you work EMS long enough, you know, realize that a save is something that's uh, not a common event and it's something we should be proud of. And you give somebody a, a new birthday uh, and, and Miss Palumbo has done that three times. So shout out to her. That was uh, strong work, ma'am. And keep it up. Yeah, and we know that those saves are very few and far between. Kelly, do you do you think or do you have a sense now as we start to think about this age of pit crew CPR and revisiting the impedance threshold device? Do you do you think we're starting to see better success rates when it comes to cardiac arrest? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I don't think that's that's really disputable. I can remember uh, in my memory where nationwide the survival rate of cardiac arrest was five percent. Uh, and then years later, it was 7%. And I think the last fami- uh, statistics with which I'm familiar put it at close to 10%. Still not anywhere where we really want it to be, but it's slowly creeping up. And there are pockets of excellence where where agencies, forward-thinking agencies, are really focusing on their cardiac arrest resuscitation and putting up some pr- uh, impressive numbers. You know, we've, we've heard of well, we're, we're well familiar with uh, Seattle Kings County Medic One and their prowess at, at cardiac arrest resuscitation. Um, but the, the recent stories about Rialto Fire and some really impressive numbers, uh, uh, almost too impressive to believe. But if they are, uh, if they are legit, which I don't think anyone's uh, disputed them thus far, uh, that's, that's strong work on their part. Uh, my own agency, we're, you know, our, our cardiac arrest survival rates are, are not in the 40 and 50% range, but for a place that does as many rural and, and, uh, suburban calls as we do with response times, like we have, uh, we're in the 24, 25% range. So nothing to sneeze at there. Uh, now if we can just get the rest of the country to, to, to do the same, you know? There's a lot of great work that's going on in the United States. And, you know, I'm glad that you kind of reinforced my thought because they, you know, we're really, we are starting to see a lot more um, opportunities for success, let's call them. And it really comes down to how we're managing this process. I mean, there are some systems that are now uh, logging uh, where AEDs are in the community Uh and the 911 or the dispatch center is saying, hey, you know, three doors down, there's an AED, go down there and grab it. 
And, you know, so we are starting to see, but, you know, it comes from the work of, you know, Mickey Eisenberg and the work they were doing up there in Seattle and King County and the Resuscitation Academy, our friends up there in Alina Health, EMS, you know, they're doing some great work. And as you mentioned, you guys down there in Louisiana really are kind of leading as well. So I'm glad that we're starting to see, you know, some, you know, a little bit of change in this process. Yeah. Yeah. You've got these guys that are there. And I think the, you know, the technology is improving. There's no question about that. We have mechanical CPR devices, although the, the data supporting them uh, being better than, than manual CPR uh, is, is not very good. Uh, however, they, they certainly are a great uh, replacement for a, a crew member when CPR is not being performed adequately, you know, when you only got like two guys and you're fatigued. Uh, so they have a place. And we, we've got new things. We've got new, uh, you know, uh, open thinkers like uh, thinking up new things like uh, heads up CPR and, and, you know, elevating the head of the bed and, and, and a bundle of, of resuscitation care. Uh, and it's starting to play, uh, is starting to pay dividends. But I think the, uh, ultimately it comes down to the human factor and, and people questioning the status quo and saying, eh, I think we can think of better ideas. Uh, and, and that's where this all comes from. You know, it, you mentioned the Resuscitation Academy, um, you know, uh, tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, emphasis is placed on the performance of good CPR. You know, the point of, of, of uh, choreographing and, and, uh, and expertly timing your interventions and so on and so forth to make, make your CPR the best it can humanly be possible. And, and that works. So, um, now we just uh, we'll, we'll we'll hopefully con- continue to see it uh, inch upward. You know, I think that one of the things that's still missing here is it seems that there's always a change in this process of how we're conducting a code. You know, we think about the years that we've been doing this; we've seen several changes. Is there more work that needs to be done on this topic that really kind of gets us to a point of you know? you know, having better save percentages or really just does it come down to the, you know, the uh, administration of how to do good CPR or pit crew CPR or, you know, whatever that is. But it it seems that we're still kind of poking in the dark here. Yeah. Well, all of, uh, all of my saves uh, have come in the the latter half of my career. Uh, Keep in mind the first 10, uh, almost 15 years I worked in EMS. uh, I was in rural, uh, uh, at a rural agency where, you know, the patient's been down for 15, often 20 plus minutes without, without adequate CPR or defibrillation. So we don't get those kind of people back, even though we, we flail mightily at it. Um, but my saves have, have come in, in the last 12 to 15 years. And I can, I can safely say that all of them are attributed to prompt defibrillation and CPR good old-fashioned BLS interventions. That's right. what works. I mean, now people that, that's, that think that ACLS has been watered down to the point where it's, it's, not, it's a merit badge without merit, and I'm one of those people, uh, don't like that. But uh, the, the fact remains that the, the things that we know work are BLS. So I'm going to go ahead and give you a story, Kelly, that I was surprised to see in the, in the news that the DOJ has produced a fentanyl safety video oh that's set God. to air. And actually, it was set to air August 30th, which is today between 2 mm-hmm. and 3 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. 
And I, I was really kind of concerned when I read this. You know, we start to see these articles, you know, in the in the you know press and certainly on EMS One, where we talk about the law enforcement people or the fire folks. They're getting exposed to fentanyl overdose, mm-hmm. and you know, there's been a lot of discussion. There's been a lot of proof that this accidental exposure is not causing. Um, an, uh, an opioid uh, overdose. Yeah. And, but now we're starting to see that the DOJ has put a, a video out for law enforcement officers on how to keep themselves safe from exposure to the dangerous substance of fentanyl while doing their job. And uh, it gives me a little bit of pause that how can the folks that are in this field really start to think that they are receiving um, this overdose and what do we have to do now to, to prove to them that this accidental uh, contact is not really causing that exposure I mean and you brought this up I thought and I, I keep quoting you every time uh, this this topic comes up is if this was true how come we're not seeing more overdoses of the dealers who are putting this in the mm-hmm. bag yeah. and uh, I just don't understand it of how we, we've gotten to this point because the power of suggestion is a uh, is a very powerful force, um, and somewhere along the way, a respected and and uh, a respected uh, um, law enforcement agency, uh, the DEA, planted in the minds of people who whose whose livelihoods and and often lives are are dependent on the on the information promulgated by this agency that they need to follow these standards and, and what they, what they tell you is for your own good and it's gospel. And it just ain't. So, um, if you're having chest tightness and dizziness and, and rapid heartbeat and all that kind of stuff after being exposed to an unknown substance, you are not having an opiate toxidrome. You are having a hissy fit. You are having a panic attack and the panic attack is something that, well, you know, we, uh, it's no knock on the person having it, but it ain't an opiate. Uh, and, and there's God knows there's there's plenty of evidence to back that up. But some people are not going to change their minds because the DEA is supposedly a reputable source. So I hope uh, it, it is my sincere hope that the DOJ and the DEA in this YouTube video that's going to be airing in in, uh, in a little over an hour, uh, two to three Eastern time that they roll back some of the myth and misconception and hysteria that they promulgated with their earlier guidance on the subject and give law enforcement officers some real-world practical uh, advice on how to deal with occupational exposure to opiates. It is my hope that they will do that. You know, it's one but of the things— I remain cynical. Yeah, I mean, and that's just who you are. I mean, you're, you're just a cynical <laughs> kind of guy. I uh, am sunshine and roses, Civil Arrow. I yeah, am a happy, sure. happy, fuzzy— warm cuddly kind of guy i'm not cynical at all maybe in your little area of utopia but i don't know that that's really true what is it that when you're uh flying monkeys uh when my legion of flying monkeys completes my quest for world domination domination, that's right you're gonna be able to then you could be then you could be warm and fuzzy that's right stuff's gonna change now you better be nice to me if you want to be on the protected roles well yeah i mean i I would hope that i would at least try to be secretary of defense or something like that but anyway so but i think that one of the things that's real here i mean i don't want to trivialize the fact that people are having challenges when it comes to their uh you know being exposed because i do think that 
you know, the anxiety that people are feeling because of this, that is what's real. And if people are thinking that they're coming in contact and people are thinking that there is some uh, reality to this, what they're feeling is real. So it may mm-hmm. be that it's masking in the sense of worry, anxiety. Um, but I don't know that we could just trivialize the fact of they're not feeling what they're feeling. But I don't just we just know that it's not coming from That's, the yeah. the exposure. They, they are they are experiencing symptoms, but your mind can create some pretty potent symptoms all on its own, and it ain't opiates doing it. You right. know, but and and we. I don't mean to trivialize or to denigrate police officers in any way. Uh, I'm, 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 uh, much better friends with the police officers I work with and the occasional firefighters I work with. Not that I have anything against firefighters either. I, I like cops, but goodness gracious, some of the myth and hysteria out there is just over the top. So I've got a good story here and I'm, I'm keeping in my vein of attaboys for EMTs and uh and paramedics you know and there's all too often when i say things that i think are necessary to hear but are not real flattering of uh, our profession uh but i like to take the opportunity to really give a shout out to people who who deserve recognition and there's another story uh came out today um from ashland ohio and uh a recently deceased uh veteran firefighter paramedic uh, mr raymond miller was recognized for training over 3,700 people to become firefighters and EMTs. 3,700 people. Uh, from uh, Mr. Miller worked at the Ashland Fire Department. Um, and, you know, this is one of the things that as I get on up there in my EMS career, and you're, you're at that point as well, we start to, we have this, this whole, uh, you kids get off our, off our lawn thing sometimes. But uh, as an advocate, one of the things I kind of rail against is, is old, uh, old hands and old dinosaurs doing the same things the same way every time and, uh, and holding back the profession that don't want to change. Um, and that's, that is sometimes a, a, a tougher view than, than we need to adopt because there is a real value to knowledge capital. You know, you, there's something that you get in a long career that, that, uh, in the early stages of an EMS career, you just don't appreciate, and that's wisdom. Uh, there, you get a, a, a sense of perspective on, on where your place is in the whole thing, and and you may be a little bit more cynical uh, than the new guy who's who's still idealistic, but uh, uh, that wisdom is hard won, and it's something that we need to treasure in our profession and and laud these people uh, for for giving back. Uh, and creating the next, what, two or three generations in the case of Mr. Miller. And I think that that's really, you know, when you get into the the world of EMS education, what you want to do is you want to be able to give, you know, uh, leave it better than when you left it. Yeah. One of the things that I got involved with that when I was in the Air Force, and I was complaining about the new airmen that were coming out of the you know, at a basic training and uh, an older sergeant said to me one time, you know what, if you're willing to complain about it, you need to go down there to Texas and you need to start training those people and making it better. 
Well, when we start to think about EMS education, it really is the same as well. And, you know, we talk about the challenges you and I on this show about how people are getting trained and, you know, what the career field looks like and how the career field is going to grow. And we've taken positions in it to make sure that we can give the best education that Uh we can and really kind of guide people the right way. You know, one of the things that it's funny, I'll share a story with you is that, uh, you know, not believing the things that you say. Well, I was talking with uh, someone who's in college, and they were talking about nutrition. And they said, you know, it takes 20 minutes after you've eaten for your stomach to tell your brain that you're full. And I said, there's no way that's true. I said, you just can't believe what people will tell you. You've got to be able to go online, and you've got to be able to prove that that's true. And I just don't think that's one of the things. But you know what? So we we looked it up, and it was, in fact, true. But it was, you know, now we have the proof that some, you know, the things that we're being taught in school uh, is something that we can look at and say that, you know, this is the way it's supposed to be. But I don't think that we do that enough, Kelly, and I think that that's one of the challenges that we have in our career field when it comes to education. Yeah, you know, and and I, I, I don't think anyone will dispute that paramedics and EMTs today are trained more extensively, deeply, uh, far deeper and broader knowledge base than they were 15 years ago and 25 years ago and 30 years ago. We are educating our EMTs better than ever before. And and I rag on old dinosaurs and, and or people that refuse to change and get with the times. Uh, but the fact that remains is that the times have changed. The education has changed. And it wasn't rookies spurring that change. It was people with long experience in EMS. Uh, so so we have moved forward, and, and a lot of that move forward was, was driven by those people with long, long experience in EMS. Um, and, and I think sometimes I don't say that enough. I, I still don't think we're where we need to be, and I'm going to holler for that every moment I get. Um, but it needs to be acknowledged that we're getting better. It's looking better every day, Chet. Last one, I, I just saw a, a, a new one here uh, uh, in today's news. Uh, a study on laryngeal tubes could increase cardiac arrest survival. This is an NIH uh, National Institutes of Health study that said that uh, using a a non or a, a minimally invasive laryngeal tube, we're talking about a King LT or something along those lines, that it actually can positively affect patient survival rates. I'm, I'm reading the study as we speak right here. That the uh, one quote from the one of the study authors said that it's a study demonstrated that just by managing the airway well in the early stage of resuscitation, we could save more than 10,000 lives every year. Um, and and they quote uh, Henry Wang as well as one of the lead authors in it. I find it kind of interesting, you know, because I would think that uh, a, a superglottic airway properly inserted beats the heck out of a endotracheal tube inexpertly inserted. And uh, the sad thing is, is that a, a inexpert uh, insertion of an uh, of endotracheal tubes is kind of more common than not. Uh, but there have been other studies in the past that uh, that linked or that uh, showed a correlation between poor neurological outcomes in patients who had laryngeal tubes and, and supraglottic airways with pharyngeal balloons inserted compared to uh, endotracheal tubes. Uh, and they didn't establish causality in those studies, but the, the theory was that maybe that large pharyngeal balloon placed pressure on the internal carotid arteries and, and limited cerebral blood flow uh, because of that. 
and, and this study seems to, to dispute that, that, that uh, mortality rates actually improve uh, with a laryngeal tube inserted. So just goes to show that, you know, science is ever evolving. And, and uh, if we don't get to the, uh, get the answers we seek in the studies, uh, then perhaps we weren't asking the right questions and we need to keep looking at it. Um, I don't think anybody would dispute that breathing for your patient is important and whatever device you use help that helps that uh, is probably going to be beneficial. Um, but what do you, what do you think, man? Would you rather tube someone or you go, you're going to go with a superglottic airway? Yeah, I gotta, I, I gotta go with the superglottic airways. You know, I think that from the standpoint, one of the things when I was working at uh, Christian hospital is I, I gave the paramedics one attempt to yeah. uh, get the patient intubated and we'd spend a lot of time and really it was our ego that was keeping us from intubating the patient. But with a superglottic airway, uh, you know, you got one attempt, you know, the landmarks, you know, the anatomy, if you can't get it, just go ahead and go to that. One of the things that I was transitioning to was we worked as a system. So we had uh, yeah. five or six different cities that we covered and everybody was on the same medical direction. I never had the opportunity uh -huh. to implement this though. I wanted the first responders to be able to place a superglottic airway you know, we were using the eye gels at the time uh -huh. to uh, ensure airway management. And if I would have gotten my way, subsequently, I would have stopped the intubation in the field because by the time that the paramedic or the transporting unit were, you know, uh, was on scene, there would have been an airway in place. And yeah. uh, But I think that we need to start thinking about that from the standpoint of show me definitively that intubation really makes a difference. And we see more failed intubations than we see successful intubations, you know, if we think about that from a, from a, a national standpoint. But the thing that I want to be able to say is how many unsuccessful superglottic airway placements are we seeing? I, I don't know the answer to that, Kelly. I'm, I'm asking that, you know, uh, arbitrarily, but mm -hmm. I don't know that I'm seeing data that says there's a lot of failed uh, eye gel placements, king tube placements in the field. Do you? Oh, you, you hear the war stories, you know, and, and often you hear the war stories from people that, that still think that a superglottic airway is a sign of failure on your part as a paramedic because uh, you didn't put in a tube, you know, that's taking the easy way out and so on and so forth. Uh, but as far as data, no. Anecdote, oh, yeah, plenty of those, uh, but but very little data. Um, but but in this in this uh, article, it says uh, Dr. Wang says that while identical to techniques used by doctors in the hospital, intubation in these severe and stressful pre-hospital settings is very difficult and fraught with errors. And he is absolutely right. But here's here's the rub: um, if it's beneficial in a hospital, then why can it we not make it beneficial in the in, in the pre-hospital setting? Um, the, the challenge seems to be that not so much the device or the procedure, but in how well it's done. And I, and I, I fully agree that we should be using superglottic airways, uh, if we are not proficient at endotracheal intubation. Um, but I, I will always say that we need to be better at endotracheal intubation. Um, but Hey, that's what we think. We'd like to know what you think. Email us your thoughts, concerns, comments, and suggestions at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Cevallero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.